Amen. Um, so, first word, Jude. Um, it is actually Judas, um, the most famous Judas, infamous rather, right? The most infamous is Judas Iscariot. This is not Judas Iscariot. Uh, this is Jesus, I'll say, half-brother, and we'll examine that, because uh, this is one of the sons of Mary and Joseph. And if that confuses you, we'll talk a little bit about that as we move along. Uh, after Jesus was born as the firstborn of Mary, the eldest son, um, Joseph and Mary had sons and daughters after that that the scripture describes. So Jude, um, the youngest in uh, that uh, group, and um, I'm the youngest in my family. If you're the youngest in your family, um, you kind of know what that's about. Um, you have certain advantages. You have certain disadvantages in that whole uh, process uh, that's going on. But the thing to notice is here, Judas, known as Jude, uh, declares himself a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Now, despite what entertainment and media and other formats have tried to tell you, as far as we know, Jesus was just an ordinary person growing up. Sinless, but wasn't going around the house performing miracles. Based on what we understand from the scripture, he was an ordinary person. Look, if you grew up with a guy who was performing magic tricks every day, you know, doing supernatural things every day, you would respect him. You you would, right? Skepticism at first. Over time, you're going to get won over by the fact that this guy performs miracles, right? They don't respect him. When he begins his earthly ministry, you get to Mark chapter 3, and he's now claiming to be the son of God, and it says they, his family, thinking him to be beside himself. That was a common expression for those who are insane, mentally ill, because commonly they grew to the place where they talked to themselves. And so it seemed as though there was someone beside them, but it was really just themselves talking to themselves. So they referred to them as being beside themselves, right? They, thinking Jesus was beside himself, went to collect him, meaning they're going to haul him away to the funny farm, okay? And that is the occasion where they arrive, and there's a thick crowd, and the crowd says, your mother and brother are outside. And Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers? Right, Because he knows they think he's crazy and they're there to haul him away. And he confirms the statement by saying, those that are right here in this room with me, essentially, those that are surrounding me who do the will of my father are uh, you know, my mother and my brothers. He's, he's rejecting his family at that point. It's a remarkable statement. So Jude was not a believer until the resurrection. If you have watched your brother, and forgive me for the graphic description, have his skin ripped off his body with a cat of nine tails. You know, often people will say 40 lashes. He was not scourged by the Jews. He was scourged by the Romans. They had a cat of nine tails, and they would tear the flesh off your body from your head to your feet as a form of execution. Jesus was unrecognizable as a man. Okay? Uh, often, 
when people were scourged, their skeletal tissue was exposed, right? Their bowels were exposed, torn to pieces, then crucified, dead, spear through the side, blood and water pours out. The heart sac, uh, the pericarditis has separated. He's got plasma and red blood cells that have coagulated and blood and water spill out. He's dead, dead. And Jude sees him after his resurrection. That'll convince you right there. When you've watched your half-brother be tortured to death mercilessly, buried, and then he's resurrected whole, and now presenting profound supernatural behavior, appearing and disappearing at will. Jude is converted to the point where he refers to himself as bond servant. <clears throat> profound title, okay? Uh, slave is uh, the uh, meaning, and it is a lifelong slave. Those who became bond servants were bound, right? There were servants. We shouldn't think of it as kidnapping slavery like we've seen in more modern history. It, it was more along the lines. It was, it was cruel, but it was more along the lines of employment. You had a debt. You could go to someone and you could sell yourself to them or someone else could say, if you owed someone else, they could sell you into slavery to clear the debt. So you got $30,000 in debt. I'm just making up numbers here. You go to somebody and say, I'll work for you for a year, which also includes they're going to provide you with uh, food and lodging. So you're, you're going to get room and board, and they're going to cover your debt. You, so you're going to live with them for an agreed-upon period of time and work off your debt. A bond servant was one whose debt was either so great or their master was so great that they would sell themselves to that master for the rest of their life. And they would go to them and say, I want to be your bond servant. I want to be bound to you for the remainder of my life. If that master agreed, it's significant to what Jude is saying here. They would take that individual to the doorpost of the house, little ceremony. They would stand them there and stretch their earlobe over the doorpost and they would take an awl and set it on it and they would drive with a hammer that all through the earlobe and pull that out, clean the wound, and then put a golden earring in their ear. The golden earring represented a single link of a chain, right? They are now a slave bound to the house of that master. In particular, their ear is bound. Right, that that what they hear, they must do. What is said to them, they must obey. Jude grew up with Jesus, rejects him, then embraces him as Savior and refers to himself as the bond servant of Jesus Christ. That is remarkable, remarkable, right? If it's me, maybe if it's you, you go around with your business card and you sort of tell everybody, like, I'm, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you want to make the presentation, right, to somehow elevate yourself. That is not what Jude does. It is not what James does either. 
in the beginning of his book, who was also a half-brother of Jesus. They both refer to themselves as bond servants of Jesus Christ. Why? They recognize who Jesus is. They recognize him as God, and they submit themselves to him, bearing that authority. So this is not a small thing when Jude says, Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. Earthly attachments, he attaches himself to James. Right? Why? Because really, I mean, there's not really any connection between him and Jesus in an earthly sense. Jesus is so far above Jude and James. They, they are in humble uh, submission to the authority and the position of Jesus Christ. To those who are called. So um, that's anyone uh, who has an ear to hear. Right? The message goes out to the whole world. Who do you know? Uh, how do you know who is called? They respond, right? Uh, we see this all through the scripture as Jesus is teaching. Uh, you know, he, he teaches the parables and then he walks away. And then the apostles come and they say, like, what, what was that all about? Like, well, explain that. And uh, he begins explaining and he says uh, to them, it has been given to you to understand the parables. Well, they came saying, we don't understand the parables. Explain them to us. What's the difference between the other people and them? They asked. They came to him and said, you guys got to know more about that. I don't understand. They got to explain that. You want to be one of those who are the called? Respond. Come to him. He'll accept. Oh, I'm a dirtbag. I'm a terrible person. He would never accept me. No, that's who he wants. Right? Why? Because wherever we are, um, he takes us and he makes something beautiful out of us and he gets the glory, right? So the worst case scenario, that's the best case scenario. That's the one Christ wants. So the called, sanctified by God the Father. I want to make this point again. <clears throat> it's true. Sanctification is that idea of cleansing or growth or maturity, right? But notice how here Jude puts it in the past tense. Because positionally, we are already sanctified, right? You're saying, ah, I wish I was more sanctified. Who doesn't, okay? In an earthly sense, in our, you know, communication and in our interaction with one another, I wish I was a better person. Probably you do too. You know, some of us might have arrived. I don't think so. You know, most of us are, are wishing and hoping for. Here's what you got to understand. You're already sanctified in Christ. He accepts you completely and wholly right now. He's not looking at you saying, I'm just just a few more inches, please. Just, you know, if you could just grow, if you could just stop doing these things, and just these two things, stop doing these two things and start doing this one thing. He doesn't do that. He accepts us where, does he want those things to change? Sure, absolutely. The scripture clarifies that. But positionally, we are already sanctified in him. Why? Because it's his shed blood that saves us. It's not your works. It's not what you do. Okay? We do those things because we have been sanctified already. Christ has taken us. He has paid for us. He owns us now. Right? What's Joe Foch? Often I quote him in saying, you know, of course God loves us. What's amazing is that he likes me. You know? That's, there's the truth. His grace, his love, the way he cares for us. 
So sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. So present tense, past tense. It's already done. The work is done. Of course, verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Uh, Mercy, right? We often see something that happens to us and we get wrong and we want justice. (laughs) Well, if look, if you're getting justice, uh, that means that all of your wrongs are going to be judged also. I'm not interested in justice. Spiritually, I just, yes, there's a lot of justice that's needed out in the world, but I would much prefer that all of us get mercy and grace, okay, and the forgiveness of God, and then the rewards that should never belong to us. They culminate in peace, right? Grace is not included in this statement. It very often is, uh, you know, grace and peace. Here, Jude simply puts forward mercy and peace, and I love the fact that and love be multiplied to you, not just added, right? It's nice when things get added to us. We were completely without, and now we have some added to us. That's great. Multiplied is that concept of, oh my gosh, now what am I going to do with all this? Multiplied. That's where you presently are in Christ. If you've accepted him, asked him to make you a child of God, give you his Holy Spirit, cause you to be born again, then all of your sin past, present, future, wiped out, grace of God extends mercy to you, you experience the peace of him, and it is all in love multiplied to you. What an amazing thing. What a gracious God. What a wonderful state of existence. I just want to point this out. Um, For people that study other world religions, you might want to just step back a little bit and see if the God of any other religion extends this kind of grace and mercy to their worshipers. Okay, I'll tell you that 33 years later, having studied world religions for now these decades, none of them do. No other God, no other worship system looks down at humanity and has compassion upon them and says, I'll take them just the way they are. Every other world religion is, in fact, it's man-made, and it's man saying, I know of or I believe in the existence of a God, and now I'm going to try and reach him or it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to perfect or purify or improve myself to the place where I finally become acceptable to God. Not possible. Why? Because we'll always be human. We'll always be flawed. We'll always be sinners is what it's going to be. So grace and thereby the love of God multiplied to you. Just for the sake of housekeeping, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, the critics of Jesus in his day raised the question saying, Is this not the carpenter? So if you're ever wondering, right, sometimes people will say, well, we don't know that Jesus was a carpenter. We know that Joseph was a carpenter. But here they actually bring this accusation against Jesus, that he himself is a carpenter, 
right? He's a builder. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? And here it comes, the brother of James, Joses, Judas, who we call Jude, and Simon. And are not these his sisters, plural, with us? So they were offended at him. They thought of him as a normal human being. So they were offended at Jesus. So if you read that list, one, two, three, four, include Jesus, five sons living in this home, and at least two sisters, maybe many more, but they put it in the plural. So at least two sisters in this moment. That's quite a household to live amongst. You can think of them as probably lower middle class. Uh, and this time, uh, builder is sort of the job almost anybody can do. Um, you know, if nothing else, you could become a builder. Like at least you could build stuff. So, um, you know, this is the, the working class man. And that's part of the reason they're so offended uh, with him because the religious leaders are, you know, elite and wealthy and look down their noses at everyone. Jesus, you know, I've in the past said Jesus was probably the one who wore the Carhartt robe. But, you know, it was probably more like the Wrangler robe. You know what I'm saying? Like he was probably a Walmart shopper and um, and people didn't care for him. And they, they said ill things about him. So, um, Andy, my brother, if you're watching online, I'll have to call you back later. So, um, <clears throat> verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent, the King James Version says, I gave all diligence to write to you concerning our common salvation. So when he starts this out, his intention is to, to uh, teach and to write to the church at large about salvation. Um, Jesus Christ shed blood, you know, all that is involved in that. He, he shifts by saying, I found it necessary, and the idea is more necessary, uh, to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. A couple of things to recognize here. The more earnestly, I was going to write to you about salvation in general. That's an amazing message and a necessary message, but he's writing to the church and it becomes a more urgent message for him to tell them to contend. And that's the idea of to fight for with all your might. Okay. The, the earnest, you know, it gets poetic and we sort of lose the urgency. Contend, right? What is that old line? I could have been a contender. You know, the idea of I could have been a fighter. And that's what he's saying. I want you to fight earnestly. That's, uh, you know. It's, he's not saying, now this is a fight you're going to get in, and if you're not really into it, just run away. He's saying, I'm telling you, I was going to talk to you about salvation, but there's a bigger fight that I need you to completely invest yourself in. And then he tells us it's the faith that they're already in, which was delivered to the saints. Now, I need to clear up the term saint. Because, you know, uh, several things, like starting with um, Jude being a brother of Jesus. We have these Christian traditions that the organized church, 
particularly the Roman Catholic institution, have perverted and warped, right? They, they teach, the Roman Catholic institution uh, teaches that, um, you know, Mary was a perpetual virgin. Well, she had sons and daughters, okay? So, so she and Joseph had normal husband and wife relations, and she gave birth to a family, okay? So, so I think that certain portions of what claims to be Christianity elevates Mary too highly, and I think other portions of Christianity does not, vener does not venerate her highly enough. Okay, so we need to strike a balance here. She was a normal woman. She herself said of Jesus, he is my savior. Okay, she's in need of a savior. Um, now here, when it says saints, again, the Roman Catholic institution has designed this idea that there are a super class of believers who do supernatural and special things. Um, I've had normal, average, everyday people in the church pray for me, and I've been healed. Um, you know, I, I have prayed for people as a pastor, and they got sicker. You know what I'm saying? Um, <clears throat> prayed for some, and they've been healed. Uh, point being, the Lord is the source of the power, not the individual. Okay? Saints are anyone who believes in Jesus Christ for salvation. Some people are more well-behaved, <laughs> more admirable, right? You know, a, an example of a guy who stumbled his way all the way into eternity, Peter, right? I mean, that guy was fumbling all the way along. Paul has to rebuke him for, for misguiding the church. Right? Being a man pleaser. We're all hanging out here, Gentiles and Jews, and we're all having, you know, lunch together, eating the same thing, bacon and, you know, also whatever. And now Jews show up from Jerusalem, and you get all freaked out about the fact that, oh, I better behave like a Jew. And so you, you not only stop eating what the Gentiles are, but you literally move to the other side of the cafeteria and you no longer eat with the Gentiles. And he says that was such a powerful influence that you started to lead other leaders of Christianity away from the truth of God's word, his grace, right? So, you know, was Peter a saint? Yes, you know, the same as, uh, you know, Steve is a saint. Have you met St. Stephen? You know what I'm saying? I just, right, St. Michael, St. John, where, you know, some of us are named after popes, but that's another issue. So, um John Paul, I don't know if you've met John Paul, but anyway. Um, so, you know, the, the point is we don't want to get led astray by the weird things that Christianity has developed. Okay? We're all saints. This, this acceptance, this sanctification is positional. Anyone who is trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, you are a saint. I, I'm always discouraged when... A Christian will say, well, I ain't no saint, but, you know, well, wait a minute. Like, do we have to go back to that discussion? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Well, then you are a saint. You am a saint. You know, it's just something to consider in this. So I wanted to write to you about uh, our salvation, but I was more urgent about this fight regarding faith that I need to deliver to you. Verse 4, explaining why. 4, 
certain men have crept in unnoticed. Yeah, so guess what? There are creeps in the church. They creep in. They've crept in. So that means you're going to have to examine them closely. Oh, I don't like to be a judge. People say that. Judge not, lest she be judged. You know, measure by which you measure it out, it'll be measured back to you. Yeah, drop down to verse 14 of Matthew chapter 7, that same chapter that tells us not to judge, and see Jesus say, you will know the false teachers by their fruits. You must, within Christianity, you must use discernment Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Right? You got to look at certain people's behavior and say, mm, that doesn't add up. And that's what Jude is saying here. So the two messages that he gives us here are number one, you have to fight regarding, you have to have an earnest fight regarding the faith, and you're going to have to defend against false teachers. That is a powerful little book, a powerful little chapter of the Bible to pay attention to. And and tell me, you guys, maybe you've never thought about engaging in this struggle at all. You've been happy and content in your church and your sliver of Christianity. And now I'm calling you to rise up and fight for the faith against the false teachers. And that's kind of shocking to you. Like I wasn't prepared. I'm a meek. I'm a mild introvert. I'm not, you know, ready for a battle. Like what, what are we being called to do within? Would you agree that there are many false teachers within Christianity? Okay. So with that, who's going to fight? Who's going to stand up and say, this is one right here. And that's one right over there. Who's going to do that? Right, we need to. Benny Hinn, okay, I don't know if he's repentant. He's said two or three times in the past two or three years that he's repentant of his prosperity gospel teachings, but he goes on preaching his prosperity gospel teachings. So that's confusing, right? Uh, Benny Hinn's first published book, Good Morning Holy Spirit, taken to an unnamed Christian publisher, when first delivered to them in 1991, that Christian publisher said to Benny Hinn and his staff, we cannot publish this book. This is a new age book. This is not a Christian book. Benny Hinn comes back. I'm not making this stuff up. And remember Hank Hanegraaff, Bible Answer Man, right? So he was in strong contention with Benny Hinn. And you can look back. Benny Hinn actually went through a process of indirectly threatening uh, Hank Hanegraaff's life and his family's life, right? You know, marching back and forth on the stage at the peak of this confrontation, Benny Hinn is saying, I wish I could find it in here. I wish I've read everywhere I can. I can't find it. I'd like to find where it says in here I could shoot him right in the face with a Holy Ghost machine gun. Wow. In sermon, you said that. That was, that was part of a sermon you were delivering to your church where you were saying you'd like to find a place later in that same message, he said, you want to be very careful what you say about me. Your children's lives are at stake. What? Okay, like you got power to take the life of my children? Like that, that is some messed up stuff. Okay, so the book goes to the publisher. Publisher kicks it back. Benny and his staff come back to the publisher with a revised version. They think they've cleaned it all up. 
The publisher says, no, you don't understand. We don't publish simply spiritual materials, which you're trying to do. We publish strictly Christian materials. This is a new age manuscript you've given us. This isn't Christian. Third time Benny comes back with his staff, he says, we'd like to pay you as the publisher to edit our book until it is Christian. And they did it. And that's what Good Morning Holy Spirit was, was the production of Benny Hinn's original writings edited by the publishing company, and they split the proceeds. Okay, <clears throat> like I say, we move through here, and you're going to see several different things about false teachers and their influence on the church. And if we don't hear Jude about there's a fight on for the faith. And we need to get involved. Now, now, now let's rewind it again and just run over this. This is Jesus' half-brother. Grew up with Jesus, who's finally come to his senses, who's saying to all of the saints engaged in Christianity, do you want to engage in this fight with me or what? This is a necessary, I wasn't right to you about our common faith, but it's become more earnest to me that I talk to you about the fight we're in. Look around at the church right now and tell me we're not still in that fight. People are fading off, you guys. People, people are withering inside Christianity. So here... They've crept in unnoticed. Have you, have you ever talked to somebody about certain false teachers and they're like, no way. Yeah, and this guy, you're kidding. Yes. Yes, Benny Ann and Kenneth Copeland and Ken Hagen and Joyce Meyer. Right, all of these names. You know, it, 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 there is a massive crowd inside Christianity that's influencing it horribly. Uh, so they've crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation long ago before the foundations of the earth, according to the scripture. Those who would be false teachers or false prophets, their eternity in hell is already sealed. That's a heavy duty statement here. They were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness, that is, a license for sin. Oh, the grace of God. I mean, you don't have to marry her. I mean, you guys are in love. You're married in God's eyes, right? These are the things we hear, right? You know, I mean, Jesus drank. It's okay if I drink. These are the things we hear. Right? Well, you know, marijuana, it grows naturally, right? So doesn't poison ivy. You don't see people rolling around in it and smoking it, right? I mean, it's just, it destroy you. The same as marijuana destroys people. Well, it grows naturally. Well, it might be natural in its natural state, but it's not natural as it's being produced now. Okay, that, you know, and, and is that what God wanted us doing with it at all, right? We have to understand that Adam's sin destroyed all of creation, right? I mean, you think about this. In the state of Maine, we have to check our wells regularly for arsenic, radon, right? You can't just go, well, it's natural. 
you know? Yeah, yeah, it is natural, and it will kill you dead. Yeah, that was the old raid emblem. But anyway, you know, they've turned into a license for sin and deny our only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you know, a lot of the church today is very confused about who Jesus is and what his role is and what their interaction with him is. You know, there's various degrees. There are those within Christianity that want to say, oh, no, Jesus isn't God, even though Jesus himself confessed that he was, right? As Philip says to him, uh, show us the Father, and it will be enough. And, and Jesus responds, have I been with you so long that you do not recognize me? He who has seen me has seen the Father, right? He makes confession repeatedly that he is God, and yet the church is confused about this. Go a different direction with this discussion, right? Oh, yeah, you know, the good Lord knows my heart. We hear that all the time here in Maine. Yes, the good Lord does know your heart, and therein lies the problem, right? Uh, we think of ourselves as good and no need for change, no need for obedience, right? The term Lord implies submission, you don't get to say, he's my Lord, if you're not in submission to him. A lot of people want a savior. Oh, I was in trouble. I was an alcoholic. I was a criminal. My marriage was falling apart. I turned to Jesus Christ. He bailed me out. And now I'm completely disobedient to him. I don't do any. I'm still drinking. I'm still whatever, right? And you talk to these individuals, and what you discover is Jesus Christ is not their Lord. At some point, right, they recognized Jesus like a fire escape. And they ran out of the crisis that they were currently in. And then there was no submission whatsoever. If, if Jesus Christ is your Savior, he must also be your Lord. He's not your Lord if he, you know, he's not your Savior if he's not your Lord. If you're not, so those who love me obey me, Jesus said. There's a lot of things to consider. Uh, oh, well, you know, the grace of God covers everything. You know, your sins yesterday, today, forever, as I mentioned earlier. So just go live any way you want to. That's the license for sin. That's the lewdness that James is warning. These false teachers creep into the church and teach people, look, as long as you prayed the prayer, you raised your hand at Sunday school and signed the card, you're in, man. That's, that's the approach, right? I've got family members that I... I love dearly. We grew up in churches that taught this false doctrine, right? Eternal security is a real thing. Once saved, always saved, right? I don't argue that point at all. But there is also self-deception. Those who do not submit to the authority and leadership of Jesus Christ, who live any way they want to, who point back at an occasion and say, I'm saved. That is a very serious consequence. So they deny Lord, the Lord God, and our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lordship is what I'm focusing on there, the submission. So verse 5, but I wanted to remind you, we actually hear that from almost every writer of a gospel. I wanted to remind you. I need to remind you. I didn't find it tedious to remind you. Okay, <clears throat> how do we learn things? Repetition. That's how we basically learn everything. Okay, even if you are an academic, someone who just inherently reads, knows, understands, retains, it's the repetition. 
the taking in, right? And then the testing out, you're proving in and out and in and out that you have absorbed what is there. It is repetition. And James is saying it's necessary. So remember that. Read your Bible every day. Why? Because you need to be reminded, right? I've talked to many people, who, you know, Bible, Jesus Christ. Oh, I read the Bible. You know, like it's the Hobbit or something, you know. I, re I read that story. No, no, it's a living book that you must study every single day, and it will teach you anew every single day. Hold to the word of God. I wanted to remind you, though you once knew this, right? Why? Because you're forgetful. <laughs> Are we not forgetful? How many times have you read a passage in the Bible and been like, oh, yeah. There it is again. I had forgotten that. I had forgotten its application. Maybe you even remembered it, but you, I didn't. I didn't think about how that applies to my current circumstances. Oh yeah, we need this continuous, constant reminder, right? Your word have I hid in my heart, implanted, placed, buried in my heart, memorized. Okay, um, guys that have memorized huge sections of the Scripture, um, whole books whole testaments, whole Bible, the guys that have done that will tell you. Uh, Rob Morang, a good uh, friend of mine, um, Penobscot, uh, Hancock County Sheriff's Office out on Swans Island. Uh, Rob and his family, together as a family, Rob has led his family in massive chunks of memorization. One of the first things that they did was memorize all of Romans 8, the whole chapter as a family. And uh, as we were talking about it, they were correcting me because they had the accuracy of it. It's a real blessing. And, and you can see the fruit in their family and in their children, just wonderful, wonderful people. So, um, you know, this idea uh, of reminding, though you once knew this, that the Lord having saved the people out of Egypt. So we begin with the people, okay? And then we're going to see the angels. Then we're going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's start with the people, and this is a direct reminder to us. So he saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. The, the, he starts right out with a blatant example of, you know, if you're one of those people that thinks like, if I could just see miracles, I'd believe. You know, I just, I hear, you know, Jesus and Christianity and all the talk, but like, show me a miracle, I'll believe. These people saw miracles and then did not believe. Miracles don't convert the heart, right? How are you ever going to get to the place where you submit to the authority of Jesus Christ? Uh, that's going to come through the word of God if you're not familiar with that. That's how that's going to happen. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. The word of God is going to be the thing that brings you into submission to Jesus Christ when you're reading things and being reminded and saying, oh, yeah. That's when you'll live by these things. So the people in the land of Egypt afterward destroyed. They didn't believe. Verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their proper dominion but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now listen, I'm going to run over this a couple times. The first one is there's a whole bunch of people who grab a hold of this, and then they go over to Genesis and say, look, the Nephilim and the angels, and they procreated with human beings and the race that resulted, and now they've been sent to hell, and, and, and like a lot of you right now are looking at me like all confused. 
Okay, well, uh, let me simplify this, okay? Because we could take that route, and we could talk about uh, Genesis chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4 and all of that stuff, and the Nephilim, and who are they, and, you know, can angels actually procreate with human beings, and all this different stuff. Well, how about we just do this? Would we agree that Lucifer at one time, and apparently one-third of the angels at one time, had their whole existence in the presence of God? Right? The scripture teaches us that. And that was their proper domain. And they left that domain, didn't they? When Satan said, I'm going to exalt myself above your throne, he was speaking directly to God. And we don't know a lot about the war that broke out and how that transpired. There's some interesting things, and I'm you know, encouraging you to study all you want to. But in the end, we know they were booted. Okay, Past, present, future, that's another debate. But they left their proper domain. So we don't have to, I'm not renouncing any of the you know, teachings in one area or one you know, venue or one idea of this. I'm just simply saying there is a very simple understanding that angels were created to be in the presence of God and there was a group that rejected that existence and were booted out. So there were angels, right? Now think about this. You got people who saw the miracles of God but then didn't believe and they received their punishment. Angels, right, who used to stand in the presence of God and then decided, no, nah, I want better for myself. Are you kidding? And got booted and suffered the consequences. And there are those who are presently in hell and there are those that are presently not in hell. We know this from many passages, but to begin with, Jesus begins his earthly ministry, and we see demon after demon saying, are you about to send me into the abyss? Am I going to experience my judgment prematurely, is what they ask. Then we also see in the book of Revelation that during the tribulation, hell itself bursts open and demonic beings emerge out of it. Okay, So, so there are those distinct teachings in the scripture of those who have experienced a certain level of judgment and been confined. And then there are others who are presently here amongst us. And maybe you're thinking your boss is one of them. Probably not. But anyway, in this subject, the greater picture is there are beings who have God's grace and his presence who then later experience God's judgment. That should cause us to be very wary. Oh, are you saying we can lose our salvation? I'll say to you outright, no. No. Okay? But you can deceive yourself into thinking that you're saved when you're not. That's treacherous. John speaks of the false teachers saying they went out from us because they never were of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained with us. Okay? Speaking of memorization, one of my closest friends years ago memorized whole books of the Bible, right? Remember John, Lori? And, and you could say to him, like, uh, what does 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 say? And he would quote it and quote the rest and quote the whole chapter to you. From my today, complete atheist. Hates God, wants nothing to do with God. So uh, there are those who have certain places and then they reject it, and they suffer the punishment. I, I don't want to be in any of that category. I want to stick right with what Jesus is saying in the book of John about abiding in Christ. 
and staying completely close-knit and not, not even potentially experiencing that. So the angels who did not keep their proper dominion but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Likewise, verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, and just so you can sort this out on your own, that's specifically describing homosexuality, set forth it as, as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. To clarify, Sodom and Gomorrah and homosexuality, because it's very offensive to a lot of people in our culture. No greater sin than uh, heterosexual sin, fornication, sex outside marriage. Homosexuality is no greater sin uh, than fornication or adultery. All of these sins fall under the same category of sexual perversion that God has spoken to the whole world about judgment. Uh, you know, we, we have this great militaristic push in our culture to normalize uh, perversion and homosexuality. And, um, you know, there's a couple strong influences, uh, Kinsey uh, being one of them and Dr. Money at uh, Johns Hopkins years ago and sex change operations that were going on uh, that have completely perverted the minds of uh, the medical community in particular. And uh, as you examine that, um, John, Johns Hopkins originated the sex change operation process uh, within just a few years, they stopped doing them altogether and admonished the whole medical world to not do them at all. And the biggest reason was that uh, in the first year after the operation, more than 50% of their patients were committing suicide. So it was supposed to be a cure for suicidal tendencies, these individuals coming in and saying, basically, if I can't have this exchange operation, I'm going to kill myself. And what they were seeing is that there was a dramatic, so they got a number of people coming in that aren't saying that at all. They're just saying, I want this exchange operation. And they're seeing a dramatic increase in suicide amongst all of them, more than 50% of them. Johns Hopkins said, this is ineffective. Stop doing it. Studied it from every angle and came to, they're the ones who most clearly classified it as body dysphoria. right? That the individual has a mental illness that causes them to think that they're in the wrong sex of uh, their person and they want to change that. Uh, those numbers have only increased, right? The, the number of people, they're up now because there's a lot of agencies doing that up now around 70% of the people are at least attempting suicide. And if you expand it out to five years, track the individuals who have had these change and you expand that time period because the original one I just described was the first year, now expanded out to five years. And uh, it is murderous that any of the medical community is engaged in it because the numbers are so high. 60, 70, 80, 90 percentile of these people are killing themselves. It's a sick and twisted thing. You know what it's all about? The $1.6 to $2.8 million they make per sex change. That's what the medical community is making on these things. Because there's a whole host of hormones that have to continue on and you know extended treatment. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm chasing this at length. But coming back to this, Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. Those critics that want to say Sodom and Gomorrah never existed, there's no evidence of it. My son-in-law 
and daughter living in California. Their pastor is actually an archaeologist, Christian archaeologist, and he's in the process of working on the archaeological dig at Sodom and Gomorrah. They have found the location and they're digging it up. So it does exist or did, right? It was destroyed because they rebelled against God. Just to dwell, I know I'm just going a gajillion miles an hour here, but uh, homosexuality in particular and why it's so offensive to God is because God wants the human race to expand. He wants greater and greater numbers. How does that happen? Through heterosexual relationships between husbands and wives, families are built. So homosexuality is actually part of the effort of our enemy to destroy the human race. Oh, human population, we don't have enough space. So I don't know if you've seen the new numbers, right? Uh, Eight billion people on planet Earth. I think that number is over-exaggerated. Uh, we were at 6.9, 2010. Uh, the thought that we've gone from uh, 6.9 through uh, 7 billion all the way into 8 billion, uh, that's pretty remarkable. Possible, depending on whose numbers you listen to. Here's the point. To this day, you can still put the entire population of Earth inside Texas. Everyone gets, at this point, 1,200, 130 square feet of their own. Okay? That's not a massive amount of space, but just consider, let's move a little farther away from one another. You know what I'm saying? Give everybody 5,000 square feet. You're still not going to consume planet Earth. And, you know, I, I, I agree with the concept, well, there's massive portions of the world you can't live in, deserts and different places. Fine. Let's just find all the inhabitable places. Let's just get away from even the tough places like the Arctic Circle. Let's live inside more moderate zones. You can still spread the population out, uh, you know, far and wide. Everybody gets their own space. What's the problem? Well, politics, number one. Two, we like to live in just a few places. It's strange. Uh, Hong Kong and New York City and Los Angeles. <laughs> you know, why does everybody have to live in these and then have 1.2 cars, you know, in, in every place that you go? So um, human thought, human process is really messed up. Um, you know, people should get married. Uh, you know, godly people should get married and have large families. Um, you know, that's what God wants. He encourages it. So we're going to be here till nine. So just brace yourself. <clears throat> I'm kidding. Um, so um, they, uh, the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, around them in a similar manner of these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. I'm going to blast through this and then just talk at the end so we get the whole chapter in context. Likewise, also, these dreamers, false teachers, in comparison to people, angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah, defile the flesh, reject authority. Mostly, the false teachers reject the authority of God's word. Secondly, they reject the authority of anyone who teaches God's word. They're rejecting the authority of God is what they're uh, doing. They speak evil of dignitaries, meaning spiritual dignitaries. Angels, God, authorities in the spiritual realm. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contrast, in contending, fighting, literally, with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses. We don't know what that means. 
Were they literally fighting over the body, like, I want it, no, I want it? Or were they arguing about where Moses' body was? Because according to the scripture, God buried Moses' body. So there's a fight going on between Michael the archangel and the devil about Moses' body. Michael dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you, literally in modern context, the Lord will rebuke you, is what Michael was saying. So these false teachers speak evil against spiritual authorities like the devil. But these false teachers will rail against these authorities without even thinking about it. And I have personally witnessed it when I was younger, going to Pentecostal churches, where the pastor would march back and forth across the stage shouting at the devil about how, devil, I bind you, I, I stamp upon your head. Uh, you know, And they say all kinds of wild things about their authority over the devil. Michael the archangel would not do that. He said, this is between you and the Lord. The Lord will deal with you. He cut the conversation off and said, I'm done. I've been in classes in churches where they're trying to teach us how to fight, verbally fight and verbally pray against devils. Jude's brother James said, you want to deal with the devil? I'm paraphrasing. This is how you do it. Draw near to God. End of discussion. Right? There's more to it. Draw near to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Right? We as children understood this when we were little kids. The bullying, you know, neighborhood is beating you up, chasing you. Run home to mom and dad, right? You get there, that bully's going to back off. You get into the presence of God, and the devil will leave you alone. You don't have to shout anything at the devil from behind the powerful presence of your father. Just enjoy the peace and protection of getting close to God. So, the Lord rebuke you, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, and these things, they corrupt themselves. He's specifically referring to their physical sinful, sinfulness. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Cain and Abel, simply put, Abel was worshiping the Lord as it was prescribed. He was offering sheep as a sacrifice. Cain brought the work of his hands. So those that say, I worship God in my own way. Oh, okay. I'm just I'm going to do my best to get a little further away from you because you're going to experience God's judgment. So these false teachers, you know, worship God in their own way. They worship in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam. Balaam was a weird dude. He could communicate with God. He heard from God very clearly, but he was in that religious relationship with God for money. Pay me <laughs> and I will communicate with God on your behalf. There are those guys, right? They're all over the television, all over the internet. They're just raking in the money. You know, you, you listen to certain things they say, and you go, wow, that's pretty accurate. You listen to other things they say, and you think that's way off. Right? Why? Because they're not actually in a relationship with God. They have the ability to hear from God, but at times they don't hear from God because they're just in it for the money. Greed is the center of their 
behavior. They're, they go they go greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perish in the rebellion of Korah. The rebellion of Korah. This is one that's most subtle, and I think it pertains most to what we're talking about here. They've crept in unaware. Korah was part of the tribe of Levi and had been given a job by God, by Moses, to serve in the transportation of the tabernacle. And instead, they looked at Moses and Aaron and said, we would prefer to be the high priests. So they rose up against Moses and Aaron and spoke evil against Moses and Aaron. And God literally opened the earth up underneath them and they and their families According to the way it's written, apparently, I can't make a perfect speculation on this, but they fell all the way into hell alive. That's a horrifying thought. The earth just went back and swallowed them into the abyss. Definitely swallowed them into their death. I can say that. Some of the indications in the, in the way it's written imply that they fell into their punishment and into hell. So <clears throat> the, the three things, the way of Cain, doing religion your way. The error of Balaam, only being in it for the money. Perishing in the rebellion of Korah, recognizing, oh, there is a godly authority in my environment, and I rebel against it, and I think I should be in charge. That's what they did. Church splits almost always focus around this. You know, the worship leader, the treasurer, the assistant pastor decides, right? There are times to remove leadership. Sin, error, there are times. I'm not implying that, but, but this rebellion of saying, I don't want my position anymore, I want your position. I, I think you can hear Satan's voice in that. I'd like to exalt myself above your throne. So these false teachers creeping in a little more. These are spots in your love feasts. Now that's communion, right? Uh, you know, our culture, 70s, free love, all that weirdness has corrupted the term love. It's when the church came together, shared a meal in worshiping the Lord together. And, and it was to imitate the Last Supper, right? We've reduced it down to this memory of the cracker and the juice, and that's communion as we focus on remembering what the Lord did. In this day, they gathered together. Once a week and had a massive meal in the process. Paul rebukes the church at Corinth. Why? Because there's very rich people who are glutting themselves and drinking to the point of drunkenness in church. While meantime, there are probably mostly slaves, maybe even slaves of those very wealthy masters who are sitting in the same room starving to death. And Paul is saying, you're not discerning the Lord's body and you're eating and drinking condemnation on yourself because you're there to take care of yourself and not think about anybody else. That's the antithesis of our faith. Our faith is supposed to be that we care for others. We are others-centric. So these, they come into the love feast communion while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water. Now, for this agricultural society, that was a terrible thing. Oh, here come the clouds. Here comes the rain. Here come the crops. Here comes the money. No rain. Just clouds. Right? It doesn't produce anything. So I'm going to blast through this. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds 
Late autumn trees, uh, the second harvest, first harvest, of course you're going to have apples. Uh, second harvest, late autumn, oh, look, we've got a sparing number of apples, but we can harvest again and make more money and have more provision. These are uh, late autumn trees without fruit. Oh, look, leaves. Oh, we should have figs. Nothing here. What did Jesus do? Right? Goes to the tree, late autumn, has the leaves, thinks he's going to get figs. None curses it to death. Right? No fruit for him. Twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. You know, it just looks like something special and spectacular in the end. It's just that brown, yellow, white foam that blows all over the beach that makes nobody want to be there. Right? That's what they are. Very, very descriptive. Wandering stars. All these ships and navigators and, and fishermen are like, oh, that's a terrible thought. <laughs> right? Because you should be able to look up at the star and navigate your way back to port or to your destination. And the idea of I looked up and there was a star and we sailed toward it. And I looked up and later there was a star. And then later I realized, wait a minute, the star's moving. That's a, that's a horrible thought. It's an unnatural, horrible thought. For these people, this is the sort of thing you describe this to a sailor in this day and they give them the shutters like, oh, that would be awful. I find myself out in the middle of the ocean with no idea where I am. Wandering stars. What a this isn't like a falling star. This is an idea that the star would like drift around in the sky and mislead you. See the correlation between the false teachers It's terrible. So wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. There's your description of hell. So Jude dis decides to confuse this with a reference to Enoch. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodliness or all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You don't want to read the book of Enoch, which you can find easily, and hold it in the same veneration as the Bible that you have in your hands. Find the book of Enoch. Read it. It's got some good stuff in it. Uh, other things will confuse the stuffing out of you uh, because uh, we don't have any accuracy on the book of Enoch. Okay. Um, the other books were able to gather together all the different manuscripts and compare them to one another and say, there, we know this is the centrality of the book of Psalms, and this is what we should listen to. And Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and all the books. We can, we can look at all the copies and say, there, that's good. Enoch, we have a limited number, and they wildly contradict one another. So to try to compile them together... Leaves us with a place of, uh, I hope that's right. <laughs> you know, enjoy yourself. Read it. There's some interesting stuff there. You don't want to walk away changing your doctrine based upon Enoch. Summarily, <clears throat> Enoch prophesied. And here, Jude tells us this is an accurate verse and understanding from the writings of Enoch. God is going to return with 10,000 of his saints, and he's going to bring judgment. Right? So we don't want to be in Christianity and wander off into one of these churches and follow one of these leaders and act like, nah, no big deal. It's Christianity. I mean, you know, close enough. No, there's judgment involved in this. 
eternal judgment none of us wants to experience. So don't tie yourself to it. These are grumblers, complainers. Now listen. Well, what do they grumble against? Because I kind of am a grumbler and I like to complain. And, you know, I like to hang out with complainers and grumblers. So, you know, we got our own internet site and we kind of grumble and complain. Well, here's the thing. What they're grumbling and complaining about is what Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, would teach us. So that which is sound Christian doctrine, that's what these grumble and complain about and against. Okay? So there are grumblers and complainers in the world and even in Christianity. But when they're grumbling and complaining against the word of God and Christian doctrine, uh, it's time to turn tail and run. Almost done. Hang with me. Walking according to their own lusts. That comes strictly from the flesh, right? And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Flattery freaks me out every single time, 100% of the time. People come up and say, uh, not often, but you're the best Bible teacher I've ever heard, right? You know, part of me wants to say, of course, and thank you so much. And could you tell these people over here, you know, to say there's a fleshly sinful part of me, the godly part of me, whatever portion that is, is scared to death of that person. Because flattery is always how the seducers win over the heart. When you're reading Proverbs and you're reading about the adulteress and the seductive woman, we often automatically think of her visual attractiveness. And there's little said about that. It specifically tells us how she wins over her victim is with flattery. Her flattering speech lures him away until the dart goes through his liver. That's a death blow. So flattery. But you... Beloved, remember the words, here we are again, remember, which were spoken before by the apostles of your Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own godly lusts, ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons. Do you see why I dwell so much on the sensual Christian music that everybody's in love with? It's got poor doctrine, it's got poor lyrics, it's got poor direction, but oh, it's sensual. It moves me emotionally. It moves me deeply, right? Well, go back and read, right? Because when Hillsong is blatantly talking about how God started creation and it turned to evolution and how these millions of beings evolved on the course that God had set them on. Well, hey, that's not Christian doctrine. That's not the scripture. God created everything in six literal days. He even specifically said, and morning and evening were the first day, and morning and evening were the second day, and morning and evening were the third day. Right? Sensual. Oh, the music, so powerful, so deep, so moving. I agree 100%. Totally agree. Like Bob Seger, right? Or Pink Floyd, right? Deeply moving emotionally, profoundly ungodly. You want to be careful about, you know, what you follow. And now I'm going to get all kinds of email about, oh, song's awesome, but whatever. <clears throat> so these are sensual persons. 
Uh, we do a bunch of Hillsong songs here, the ones that are correct and good. We enjoy them, okay? you got to be cautious and be careful. And if you haven't noticed, Hillsong's in deep trouble, right? The, the founder of Hillsong, he molested boys in Australia, and his son kept it a secret. They paid one of the men who had been molested $10,000. Hillsong paid them $10,000 to keep quiet. Australian law says if you know of a molestation, you have to report it, or you are guilty of a crime, will be prosecuted and jailed. So right now, uh, they're fighting for their lives. Fighting for their lives. Because they have failed at their duty to protect the body of Christ. So these sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. Not having the spirit. Think about this. I mentioned Bethel music this morning in a class that I was teaching. And uh, a bunch of people kind of raised their hair over that whole thing. <clears throat> Bethel music's pastor has literally taught that he can communicate with the dead. That he has literally eaten the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. That when Christian saints die, their powers stay where they died. And so you should go there and try to collect those powers. What, wait, what? You can go, they teach, you can go to graveyards and lay on the graves of saints who have passed away and absorb their spiritual powers. Uh, not biblical. Would we agree with that? That's not biblical teaching. These are things we should avoid. There, there are many, many things that are going on. They, they are false teachers. Uh, they don't have the Spirit. Capital S. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Oh, I just, you know, arguments with people about, I came to Christ through their book. I read their book, and that's how I got saved. To which I said, yeah, and God used a donkey to speak to Balaam. You know what I'm saying? It's not, God does whatever he wants to do. I'm, I'm amazed, I, I, I'm, I'm blessed that you got saved. But the bottom line is, these things are false teachings. And you need to use your discernment. I don't like to study. Well, that stinks. Because this is what our faith is about. Using our head to absorb and read. I said nine o'clock. I'm getting there. So, but you, beloved, build yourself up in the most holy faith. In contrast to all that sensual garbage, you build yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God. Not the love of the world, right? Not all of their descriptions. In the love of God. Looking for the mercy of your Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That's what we are fixed upon. Our face is set surely toward. And on some, so now, these who have been influenced by these false teachers, those who have fallen under the sway, what are you going to do about them? How are you going to rescue them? What's your role? Here it comes. On some, have compassion, making a distinction. See how you're going to have to use your discernment? Some are going to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with you and argue incessantly, and you're never going to win them over. Others were under the influence of these false teachers, and you'll be able to press the word of God in and pry them off so that they begin to grow, right? Don't waste your time with the ones that wholesale reject what you have to say. 
If they're going to be converted, Christ will do that, and then you'll be able to minister to them. So use your discernment and make a distinction. On others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Uh, it's, uh, it's not an easy task to pull somebody out of the fire. And there's a degree of danger involved, right? You're going to probably pay. You're probably going to get burned, right? We say, I'm done dealing with that guy. I've been burned so many times. Maybe you need to be burned one more time. Reach back into the fire, into the trial, into the difficulty. Grab a hold and try to pull them out. Are they not worth it? Don't you love them? That's why you started working on them. That's why you started pulling. Yeah, but I've been burned. Exactly. Reach right into the fire. Let the Lord deliver them out. So uh, others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. What does it do? Garment defiled by the flesh? What is that all about? I'll, I'll give you a quick thing. It's much broader than this. Uh, you could look at it as the idea of some people come out and they are literally, as it's being said, they're, they're dressed sensually. They don't, they don't have uh, any degree of modesty. Okay? Uh, you know, hating even the clothes. If I, I've been at youth camp and had to say to young men, hey, you know, I like heavy metal too, but while you're at youth camp, I'm going to ask you to turn that Metallica shirt inside out. You know, I don't want you going around just promoting a band that said a nail held back the hand that healed. Right? That's a lie. Right? Jesus Christ held his own hand back. It wasn't a Roman nail driven in there, as James Hetfield and Metallica teaches. Jesus Christ kept his hand there in order to die. For you and for me, that nail didn't hold back that healing hand. And we're not going to, I was appalled. Go to a Christian, con Christian. I'll use the air quotes there, Christian concert years ago, lead singers up there uh, with a Def Leppard t-shirt on singing about Jesus Christ. You know, some of you guys don't know Def Leppard, but I'm telling you this. If I quoted certain lyrics to you, right, you would actually be legally allowed to punch me in the mouth because of the threats, the sexual threats, if I was quoting their lyrics, uh, that they make about your sons and your daughters. Okay? If somebody walked up to you and said, I'm going to do this to your daughter, and you went, bash, and hit them in the mouth, you'd be legally justified because they just proposed a threat. And this guy's up there singing about Jesus with his shirt on. And there's confusion in the body of Christ, right? There is a purity that comes in the Lord. It isn't like self-righteous indignation looking down our noses, but there is a sinful worldliness that needs to be cut off and forsaken when people come to the Lord. Leave these things behind. They don't belong in the body of Christ. They're not something that we should fashion ourselves to. Um, so... Um, the garment defiled by the flesh. Um, uh, verse 24, now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Oh, I, I need to be kept from stumbling. I've watched some of you. You need to be kept from stumbling. Uh, 
In fact, I've watched all of you, and you need to be kept from stumbling. <laughs> I've noticed that you're all human, and we're all sinners. So we need to be kept from stumbling, Jesus Christ. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. How's he ever going to present you faultless? By grace only. Because it's never going to be, oh, finally, you're faultless. <laughs> now I can take you to my heavenly father. I've waited for this for so long. Praise God. You've gotten your act together. You finally started getting up before the sun and studying the Bible all day. And, you know, just, wow, you're impressive. That's not how it comes. It comes through the grace of God. That's how the faultlessness is there. Uh, present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. So that just closing sort of benediction of, of praise, that this is Jesus Christ, and he is the one of glory. In contrast, you guys, not to just drag it out, with all this corruption that he's describing that has crept into the church. We have the glory of Jesus Christ that's going to purify us and present us before his Father. Caution against the false teachers and fight for the faith. Amen? Amen. So let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are grateful for your love and your grace in our lives that has been multiplied in your love. Help us to be men and women that embrace that grace, mercy, peace that comes from you. That we would engage in the struggle that is all around us in the church. We long to see your kingdom come and your will being done. Use us as your servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.